following is a message from Praise and Worship, a community of people in Branson, Missouri who are loved by Jesus and joining Him in His mission to bring love and hope to all people. For more information and for more audio and video content, visit www.branson.church. Today we're talking about receiving God's forgiveness. And it may be like, easy. We were joking in Bible study, you know, we talk about how, oh, well, I like to sin, God likes to forgive. This is going to be fine, Mark, no problem. And, and we talked about that, and that's certainly the thing, but we're going to go more than that today, because yes, that's one of our struggles. I want us to see literally how His grace flows from where He sits upon His throne right into our very beating hearts in this room. And so with that and through that, we're going to ask the Lord to, to do that here today. We're going to boldly pray for that as we study this word in Romans 3 and Mark 15, um, asking him to bless us. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for all that you give us. And right now we cry out to you. And I pray that every single heart in this room would receive your forgiveness again and again and again as, as every single day is anew and your grace and your mercy come new every morning that we would continue to receive your forgiveness. That we would see ourselves as your people. That we would see ourselves inexorably linked, connected forever, for all eternity to that day on that hill that was called the place of the skull that we would see that that was the day that you conquered the darkness, that you destroyed the end of the story and you began the new beginning, that you vanquished the evil one and you made a public spectacle of him and all who serve him by nailing the law itself, its rules and regulations which stand opposed to us to the cross. And you set us free be your children once again. I pray that that powerful truth would be forever embedded in our hearts by the work of your spirit as we pray for you to pour out your grace and your mercy and your ever-perfect peace. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So we have been going through our core values. Today we're on the fourth of our core values, and you can't read those little words, but around that circle it has our first core value, the first one being welcoming. So we said, we asked the question, what does our front door look like? And we put even, even put up a picture of our new building, which is being built, and it has no doors yet, just so we're all clear. They are doing the foundation, woohoo! But um, it has no doors yet, but we're asking, what's the front door of that church building gonna look like? And we asked, what's the front door of your house gonna look like? Because guess what, the church, does not, the church is not a building, it's a people. And we were, we were asking, what are the front doors of our hearts look like? And the answer that we said is welcoming. We welcome people. We welcome people. We welcome people. And the second thing we looked at was we wanted to create an environment of healing, which means once they get in here, what does our family room look like, right? And it's a place of healing. We all are broken and we need healing. And then last week we said, and one of the key things is to cure our cases of plank eye. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of plank eye. Those of you here last week, you remember plank eye? Jesus said, don't, why, do you, why do you pay attention to the speck in your brother's eye, but don't pay attention to the plank in your eye, right? And so we, we, we saw that it's through his good news, the fact that he saved us, that that plank is removed and we can see each other as people who are made in the image of God, each uniquely beautiful. And so today, here we are receiving. And 
You know, in some ways, depending on if you grew up in the church or if you're new to the church or you're somewhere in between, this might be a story you've heard before, right? And I, and I, always, think of, I always think of it like this. You know, if, if, you, if sometimes you'll go down on the street corners, sometimes in certain towns or even on college campuses, and somebody will be there saying, Repent! The kingdom of God is near. You need to believe the good news. And everything they're saying is right. That's correct. But sometimes it hits us kind of like, well, he's kind of a, he's kind of a religious nut job. You know, that's kind of what we'll feel, right? And, and maybe, a, maybe that's what a prophet looks like, you know, maybe, maybe they're religious nut jobs or whatever. But, but what happens, though, the, uh, there's this other side of this sort of the thing. There's maybe another ditch on the other side of the road, if we were to use that analogy. And that is, if you come to church a lot, and you're like, you know, you're, all your sins are forgiven. And you're like, kind of like, oh, yay. You know, when time does the game start? You know, I mean, it kind of, you know, you see how this works. And we can start to not realize that we've actually been given this infinite gift that is beyond comprehension and beyond any measure comparable to any other thing in the universe. Like, your whole existence went from being one of utter destruction and suffering to being one of an exalted child of the sovereign, majestic Lord of the universe. I mean, I know, I know you're, everybody's like, gee, Mark, chill out. No, I'm not going to chill out. Because this is the thing. This is what it means to receive the forgiveness of sins. To receive the forgiveness of Jesus, of the Father, through the Spirit. Right? And, so, and so this is one of those things that we do. We kind of grow in this. And, I, and, and one of the things that is so important to me is that, you know, there's sometimes when you can say words, and because you've said them so many times, they just sort of fade away. But here's the thing. Husbands, if you just suddenly never said I love you again to your wife, how would that go for you? All right? Not so good, right? Um, try it. No, don't try it. That's bad marital counseling. Don't try it. But you see what we're talking about. And, you know, parents need to say that to their children. And loved ones need to say it to one another. Friends need to do that. And so when we're talking about these, don't miss these words. Take a look at Romans 3.10. Now, we're going to put these on the screen and zoom in on them. And Romans 3.10, very short passage. There is no one righteous, not even one. And what I love to do is always to take a moment and zoom in on a few of these words. And in, their, in this case, we have the word righteous highlighted. And the word righteous is a word that we see in the Bible hundreds of times. And very rarely do I ever hear the average American talking about righteousness, right? And this is interesting because it makes me wonder, do we even know what it means? I, you know, one day I was, I was at seminary, and this happens at seminary a lot where the professor will be like, define that word. Because in theology, your definitions mean everything. And it was so funny to watch a bunch of seminary students squirm in their seats because we're like, well, we've all heard this word since we were kids. We grew up in the church, and we don't know how to define it. If I asked you to sit here on the spot, what does righteous mean? You'd be like, um, I think it has something to do with righteousness. You know, I mean, that's what we would do. And it's like, wow, righteous simply means everything as it ought to be. Okay? And we don't have any trouble understanding that. Everything as it ought to be. Have you ever just had, you know, like something came out of the oven and it was just, it just was right, yeah? And it was like everything as it ought. You know, it's like when you've been, you've been out working in the yard or something or doing workout on the back 40 and then you come in and there's some cold beverage and it's just the way it ought to be. It's right. That's what righteousness is. 
The sad truth is that when we look at righteous from a religious point of view, we oftentimes do it like we said last week. We make it a measurement. Are you a good person or are you a bad person? And how many good works do you have versus your bad works? And then invariably we grow up kind of with this scale or a ledger and we hope that there's more good than there is bad. And if there's more good than there is bad, then we're righteous. And so the question becomes like, well, how many good do you need to have? And I always tell the joke, and it's not really a joke. It's kind of funny, but it's not a joke. And that is I'm, a, I'm roughly 32% righteous on Sundays, not so much on Mondays. Mondays, it's low 20s, right? It's silly. It's a game. And so Scripture says, don't play the game. Mark, are you saying? No, Scripture says <laughs> nobody's righteous. Nobody's the way they ought to be. So stop thinking that you are. That's one of the invitations that is important when we, start, when we grow in the study, when we study our hearts for our core values. And, and, and what's ironic, I was, I was celebrating with uh, Jeff and Tina Ferdin. Yes, you notice I put them, they're married. Some of you guys know Jeff and Tina from the olden days. And we were at their wedding, and we did their wedding yesterday. It was amazing, it was a celebration. But somebody was saying after the, after the ceremony, like, they're like, you know, you're not like a pastor. And I'm like, oh, I take that as a compliment. You know, and, and they were like, yeah, but you're sitting here, we were all drinking wine together. I had one glass of wine, it's very appropriate. Paul said to Timothy, drink a little wine, keyword little. And so we did that. And, and they were like, yeah, but aren't you supposed to be, you know, they didn't say this, but the implication was pastors are supposed to be holier, more righteous than other people. To which I say, hogwash. I mean, we're all supposed to be righteous. That's the whole point of what righteous means. It's the way we ought to be. And it's the way we aren't. And so we start there together. There are no people more righteous than others. And that stereotype and stigma and all of that, which I feel now, but it's, it's, it, we can apply it to other people as well. You know, even if you're just a church-going person and the people at your workplace or your community know that, and then they'll be like, oh, you're supposed to be the churchy guy or the righteous guy or whatever. Yeah, all of that's nonsense. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Let's make it so that we don't miss it. Therefore, no one, this is the Paul, Apostle Paul by the power of the Holy Spirit, will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. That word observing is the Greek word ergon. You've heard of ergonomics. This means work, right? So ergonomics is like how to make your work better. And so ergon is working the law. No one will be declared righteous in his sight by working the law. You've heard of the thou shalts and the thou shalt nots. Those have nothing to do with righteousness. Get that in your heart. But I thought we were supposed to, you know, like not steal and not murder. Agreed, that's great, but they don't have anything to do with righteousness. Not with you or me becoming righteous. What's really interesting, as we will discover, is they have a whole lot to do with how to love people. Turns out that if I don't steal from my neighbor, that's a pretty loving thing to do. So is not murdering them, right? But Jesus was more interested in not just what our actions were, but what was going on in our hearts. And he's like, I want you to love your neighbors. They asked him, what is the greatest commandment? And he said, you've read the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. You've read the law, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. You know, there's, there's all these words that come flowing out. And then he goes, and the other is just like it. Like, you know, they asked for one and he gave them two. But he says, just like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
And so this challenge, this issue, is what he's inviting us to do. And Scripture is saying, I don't want you to observe the law. Rather, the law teaches us, makes us conscious of our sin. Makes us conscious of our sin. And what is sin? So we got to talk about that. We, declare, we, de- we defined righteousness. What does sin mean? Well, sin, the literal definition of it, it means missing the target. So if you're out, you know, you've got archery going, or maybe you're throwing darts, or maybe you're, you know, whatever, maybe you're playing football and you throw it, it doesn't quite go where it's supposed to go. Whatever it might be, it's when you miss the target. It's ironic because you could almost see that as an, as an, in, 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 an inversion of righteousness because righteousness is when you're not as you should be and sin is when things miss the target. They don't go where they should. And so you and I are in this conundrum we learn in Romans chapter 7 where sin is something that lives in us. We are in exile because of sin. We are separated from God because of sin. We have brokenness in our lives because of sin. We struggle in relationships and we don't do our jobs the way we should and people hurt us and people go out and shoot up Walmart and all these kinds of things because of sin. And so what the law does is it teaches us, it, it, wake, it wakes us up, it takes the scales up off our eyes and cures us at least partially of our blindness to our sin. You know, it's, Paul will go on to write in other places, in Galatians and so forth, by the power of the Spirit, that, you know, it, we would have not known there was, a, we, did not, we would have not known there was such a thing as coveting unless the law said, do not covet. And so here we are, we're like, somebody's like, what does covet mean? And the answer is, <laughs> like when a Chiefs fan looks at a Patriots fan's trophy case, right? You know, that's how this works, right? <laughs> We only have one Lombardi trophy, they got six, and we gotta turn that around real fast. That's coveting, right? I'm, oh, we want that, right? Or, you know, and that's a sports analogy, we could put 100 more in there of different categories, but it's when we want something that somebody else has. And that is a problem with our hearts. And it demonstrates the problem of our hearts. Otherwise, if nobody had told us this was a problem, we just move on down the, li- down the line and do whatever we want and stomp on everyone and stand on each other's necks and. There we are. Oh, wait, that's what the world looks like, isn't it? And so here we go. Through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Take a look at verse 21. But now, now, a righteousness from God, in other words, the way things should be from God, apart from law, has nothing to do with the thou shalt's and the thou shalt not's. It's apart from the law. It has been made known. It has been revealed. The the cover has been taken off. It's like those olden days when they would reveal the new car. You know, or like on, you ever, anybody watch Prices, right? You know, and they were like, and they go, a new car, and they'd slide the doors open. That's what, it's just, it's open, right? And now we see it. It's been made known, although, he says, it was there all along, because the, the word law and prophets is our, what we would call the Old Testament. It's actually there, you'll find it in Genesis chapter 15, when God says to Abraham, tell you what, here's what, I got this plan, we're going to go do this thing where you're going to save the world, and then it says Abraham believed him, and it was credited to him as righteousness. God gave, he made Abraham righteous because Abraham heard what God said, and well, oh, okay. See, and that's, that's what this is an invitation to, to receive God's word and go, okay. And that's exactly what we're calling us to do. He's calling us to do. Look at verse 22. 
It's the way home. The righteousness from God, this righteousness from God, this the way it should be, comes from God, and it comes to us how? Through our good behavior? Through faith. Now, what is faith? Because that's another word. We grew up, we say it a million times, and you get 10 Christians together, ask them what faith is, that real squirm. Because it's this word, we're just supposed to know the answer to it. And everybody says, well, that's not how it works. It works by faith. And I'm like, yeah, but what does that mean? So some of you are quickly, you've got your little mental Rolodexes going, and you're like, oh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, faith is the evidence of things unseen. Correct? I mean, that's God's word. Let's take it, right? But does that help answer the question? I mean, maybe a little, because you're like, okay, wait a minute. The evidence of things I don't see. And if you start tracking with that, that's actually a really awesome way to think, because you're actually seeing things happen, but you, but you don't see what caused the things to happen, which is really beautiful. But here's, I always like to do, let's just make it real simple. How many here has ever, how many of y'all have flown on an airplane? We see a lot of hands. Yeah, there's a lot of hands going up. A lot, of, a lot of airplane flyers here. And so what's interesting is I'm going to suggest to you that you fly by faith. Now, some of you are trained pilots or engineers, and you might know a little more about aerodynamics and all of that. But most of us, when we're walking up the ramp, at some point, we make the decision to trust the pilot, the crew, and this big, large piece of iron and titanium and steel that's going to fly us 30,000 feet in the air. At, well, at some point or another, you get on the airplane. You get on. And so really, if you, if you were to think about that, it's, you think of it, they've created these terms. The airline has created terms. You pay us money, we will fly you thousands of miles or hundreds of miles very quickly to your destination. And that flight then is all these terms are set, and then you either do it or you don't. I would argue that faith, which certainly is the evidence of things unseen, is simply life on God's terms. Saying, how does this work? And he goes, this is how it works. And you're like, okay. I don't understand it all the time, but I'm on track with it. I don't know how aerodynamics work, but I'm going to get on the airplane. I have no idea if this pilot is any good or not, but I know the one who made him, and I'm putting my trust in him or her in terms of the pilot. And so whoever it might be, whoever the situation might be, however it might work, whatever it might be, it is the way home is to put our faith in Jesus. To, to hear the story and go, could it, could it be true that God loves me? So many of us grew up with this little mini story of God. See if it tracks with you. You grew up hearing that if you are a good person, some of you guys might have had really good preaching or whatever, and then you, you, you heard, if I believe in Jesus, so whether it was being a good person or believing in Jesus, either way, then one way or another, then I'll get to go to heaven when I die. And then we all think that the story of the Bible is you're born and hopefully one way or another some missionary makes it to you to tell you about Jesus and then you'll either believe in him or you're a good person depending on which view you held. And then if, then if it's all good then, and you do something, then you'll get to go, to go to heaven. And may I just tell you that is not the story of the Bible. And a lot of people are like, wait, what? I don't know if you tracked when we did the Apostles' Creed. The last part of the Apostles' Creed was not and in the end we'll all go to heaven. That isn't what it says. And we confess it every, well, not every week, but almost. It says, the resurrection of the body. You see, God's plan is to not have us die and go to heaven, although if you die today, you will be with him in paradise, all right? That's, that's what happened. But the idea is the long-term story, the full story, is that he brings heaven to us. He brings heaven here, right now. 
Do you know we have this plan? We're putting together this serve team, which Todd is helping coordinate and organize. And, and uh, you heard from him on that last week. And what it, that is a perfect example of the serve team where you have human beings who go without any benefit to themselves to help other human beings. Just why do, they, why do we do it? Because they need help. That is called bringing heaven to people. That is exactly the way the kingdom of God works. That's the way we are called to join him in his mission. And it comes through faith in Jesus to all who believe. Take a look at verse 23 and 24. He continues. He said, there's no difference for all have sinned. He reminds us once again, just in case we missed it, everybody's on the same level. There's no levels. And we all fall short of glory of God, so there's no question there. And I always used to grow up grouchy because they'd put that first part of the sentence on the church marquee. They would never put the second part on there. I guess they were wanting you to feel scared or something, so you'd come in and hear the good news. I don't know. But the second part says, and are freely justified, justified freely by his grace. Now, justified is another one of these big church words. We've got to open up and see what it says. Justified means declared perfect. Declared. God said so. And he, he can say so justly because Jesus died on the cross. He fulfilled everything. And so he says so justly because you are perfect, not because of what you have done or what I have done, but because of what Jesus has done. And how did he do it? Through the redemption, the purchasing back. He bought you and I back through the Messiah, who is Jesus. Now, we've got to go to verse 25 because, guys, this is the key part. Now, you're looking at the, if you're looking at the screen, it says this big word, hilasterion. And you're thinking, well, Mark has just lost me. My eyes are rolling back in my head, and I'm thinking about when kickoff is. I get all that. But the Greek word, hilasterion, I want you to hear the word. You don't have to remember it, but I want you to know that there's some big, big cool word in the middle of this. Because in our English translations, it says, it, depending on which translation you read, it either says sacrifice of atonement, or in the ESV, it'll say propitiation which really clears things up. And so, so you have sacrifice of atonement, which sounds really beautiful, but I don't necessarily know what it means. Or you got propitiation, have no clue what that means. And then what I'm giving you now is a third word, which means even less to us, because it's not even English, it's hilasterion. Why am I doing this? Guys, this is a hyperlink. Now, you guys know what a hyperlink is. I know I'm a tech guy, but you can track. You guys click on websites all the time. Whether you're clicking with a mouse or tapping on your phone, you're tapping links. And the link takes you to something that's related to it. And I want you to know that the inventor of, Bible, of hyperlinks was God in the Bible. He did this in his word, and it's just filled with them. And this is one of the, me the biggest ones. And I was like, how big can I make those letters? That's how big I made them, however big they go. And this is one of the biggest ones because what it does is it takes us all the way back to Leviticus, to Exodus, to Deuteronomy, to all those stories, specifically to Exodus. And in Exodus, they, they, were, you know, they were on the mountain with Charlton Heston, right? I mean, Moses. And so they were there, and, and, and God gives them the law, and, and it's the thou's and the thou shalt, and they keep them not more than 30 seconds, and then they start building idols, and all the things are just going south really fast. And they become conscious of their sin. And, and God talks to Moses, and he's starting to think, I'm just going to kill everybody. I mean, this is what God says. I think I'm just going to kill everybody and start over with you. And Moses is like, but you promised. See, God's one of these guys. He, he knew how the story was going to go. He wanted to see what Moses would think. Moses says, but you promised. 
you promised. And he's like, yeah. So he had him fashion this thing called the Ark of the Covenant. And if you love Indiana Jones, you know all about the Ark of the Covenant, right? Now, I'm going to bring you to a little bit more important stuff than Indiana Jones, although that's one of my favorite movies. So the idea is the Ark of the Covenant. If you remember Indiana Jones, you saw those big golden things on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. And what you were worried about is if you took the lid off, your face would melt. That's what happened in the movie, right? And I understand all of that. But what, why were these golden things on top? They had big wings. They were called the cherubim, right? And what they were, or the cherubim, depending on how you pronounce that, and they were there, and what would happen is God told Moses, in the middle of those two cherubim, that's where my presence will be. That's where my presence will be, in that spot. And you know what the word for where that spot was? You might guess. God presented Jesus as he himself present for you and for me on the cross, on an execution rack. That's where the hilasterion happened. It happened for you and for me so that you and I would be set free forever, that we would participate in the restoration of all things, that we would have hope in the midst of a world that is broken, that we would know the way home even when we are feeling lost. That no matter what we have done, hear me so clearly, I don't care what your sin list is, I don't care what your resume of unrighteousness is, you are declared perfect in the eyes of God because of what happened on that hill called the skull. Because that's where God put the hill Asterion, the place of mercy, the place of redemption, the place of hope in the midst of the brokenness all through faith in his blood. Our last passage, Mark 15, verses 37 to 38, so that you know the hyperlink, that you know how this worked. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The purpose of the curtain was to keep you and I from God because anyone who went in there to the Hillisterion if they didn't have all the proper rituals and, and righteous things applied to them, they would die immediately. Their faces would melt, just like in Indiana Jones. And so what would happen is when Jesus died, that curtain tore once and for all for you and for me. Cry out his name anytime and every time you need it. And you know what he will do? He will pour out his forgiveness. And what we're going to do right now is we're going to pray that no matter where we're at in our life, we will receive that gift by his power through his spirit according to his word. Please pray with me. Father, we ask you boldly right now, we ask you to save us again and again and again through your forgiveness which you pour out to us. Let us see our lives forever linked, forever hyperlinked to that moment on that hill and that you have sent people into every land, to every tribe, to every tongue, to every culture, so that we would know this story, and that we would believe it by faith. And I pray that you would continue to protect us from the evil one who wants to get us focused on our behavior or our lack thereof, or that of our neighbors, and instead get our hearts focused upon Jesus, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.